You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, editor-at-large at The Diplomat, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Sushant Singh, who's joining me from India. Sushant is a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research, and over the last year, he's been one of the most astute and closest observers of the situation along the Sino-Indian border. Sushant, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you, Ankit. Thank you for hosting me. It's my pleasure. Uh, so, Sushanta, we, you know, just to kind of provide our listeners with a little bit of background. Uh, so, over over the last year, we've done several episodes on the situation uh, at the Sino-Indian border, and we've talked a little bit about broader shifts within the uh, Indian Armed Forces, including the reorganization to the north, uh, how how dynamics have affected India's broader military strategy, including the resource constraints that have taken away from the Indian um, from the Indian Navy in favor of the Indian Army in many ways. But today I wanted to reflect a little bit on really the bigger picture of what's happening uh, in the geopolitics of the relationship between India and China. Uh, the occasion for this podcast, of course, uh, is the one-year anniversary. We're recording this on June 15th, still here in the United States. Uh, so just one year since the remarkable clash in the Galwan Valley that resulted in the deaths of 20 Indian soldiers and at least four soldiers acknowledged by China. Uh, that clash did not involve firearms, involved clubs and rather crudely improvised um, bludgeoning devices, so to speak. Um, but certainly I think we've seen a fairly momentous turn in how India thinks about China and in many ways how China thinks about India. So Sushant, perhaps a place to begin, um, you know, just very briefly, um, tell us a little bit about this, the situation on the ground. Uh, of course, we have sort of many different areas. The geography of this region is something that uh, we've gone over several times on the podcast. Uh, you know, you have Depsang, Galwan River, Hot Springs, Gogra, Pangongso, the Kailash Range, all these hot spots. Uh, but tell us a little bit just in broad strokes uh, what's been going on over the last uh uh, you know, four to six months or so. Yeah, so essentially in the last four to six months, uh, among these six or seven places that you just mentioned, uh, the partial disengagement, that is the troops which are facing each other face to face, uh, they walked back a certain distance, both in Pangong Lake, the north bank of the Pangong Lake, as well as in Kailash Range. So in the Pangong Lake, the Chinese had come this side. In Kailash Range, Indians had gone on to what they believed to be their own side of the line of actual control. And in both these places in February, a certain amount of disengagement took place. But let me clarify that after disengagement, there was no uh, de-induction or uh, uh, people did not move back to their permanent bases or out of the theater completely. So the, so the tensions in a certain sense remain, although uh, the the uh, the cause or approximate cause for an incident or an accident uh, leading to an escalation uh, was removed. But you know, in the, all the other areas, whether it is Depsang, whether it is Gogra, Hot Springs, Demchok, uh, none of the not, no disengagement has taken place, and the Chinese and Indian soldiers continue to remain face to face. Overall, the Indian Army has confirmed on the record that 50 to 60,000 Indian soldiers uh, are deployed in Ladakh. Uh, facing an equivalent number of PLA, PLA troops. Uh, meanwhile, satellite imagery has has shown that PLA has constructed a lot of infrastructure and brought in, uh, and their own reports suggest that they have brought in a, a high degree of modern equipment, which was usually otherwise sent to the Taiwan Taiwan border first. For the first time, they are bringing it to the Xinjiang district, military district. Uh, amidst, amidst all this, the tensions between India and China have remained high. Uh, India has become a more active member of the Quad. Uh, India has been uh, talking to other Western other Western powers uh, as the Biden administration has taken a very strong uh, strong stand against China. Meanwhile, in the, in the pandemic, Indians have suffered very heavily. New Delhi has really been dented in some ways, and. Uh, 
and uh, and that has put India under pressure. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me just ask you a little bit about uh, you know the situation for India's Northern Command. For a long time, uh, the sort of nightmare scenario, so to speak, for Indian strategists was the so-called two-front scenario. In, in North India, not just in a conflict, but also in peacetime and sustaining deterrence. Of course, you know, there have been interesting developments on the India-Pakistan side, including the uh, agreement earlier this year between the director generals of military operations, leading to uh, a bit of a um, you know, release of the pressure there. But say a little bit about how the Indian Army's broader posture uh, to the north has been affected by the events of the last year. Is India now effectively in peacetime managing two fronts to the north? Uh, uh, you know, a, a short answer would be yes, uh, but a more nuanced answer would be that the priority has very clearly uh, shifted towards the China border. Uh, essentially, as you know, for a long time, over the last three decades or so, uh, it, it was believed that Indian diplomats would be able to handle the situation on the China border, and it would not require, uh, it would not really require a military effort. But this time, over the last 13 months or so, it has clearly been shown that uh, India would need to put in the military effort, and for and to put in that military effort to bring in those resources, to bring on bring in the equipment, the wherewithal, uh, they have had to. Uh, you know, reorient some of their forces from the Pakistan border to the China border. Most famously, the Strike Corps, Mathura-based one Strike Corps, which was one of the three strike formations which would go across the continental borders in, inside Pakistani territory. Uh, one of those has uh, Strike Corps has been dedicated towards Ladakh, uh, and one of the Strike Corps, another formation which was raised for mountains, the 17 Strike Corps, uh, in a couple of, a few years back, that has been dedicated towards the eastern sector, that is in Arunachal, in Arunachal Pradesh. That has been the most significant uh, shift uh, that has taken place in terms of uh, reorientation of certain troops from the uh, from the Pakistan border to the Ch to the China border. Uh, does it mean that India is managing two active fronts in peacetime? Yes. Uh, does it mean that it poses a huge challenge on India's northern command? Yes. Uh, the the extent of challenge can be gauged from the fact that. India has has moved one of its uh, counterinsurgency forces, uh, the, the 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 rifle forces, which is a division equivalent force, but not equipped, not trained, not meant for conventional warfare, into Ladakh to take on areas to the south of Pangongso, which mm -hmm. clearly shows that India has been overstretched. India's conventional forces have been overstretched. That it moved out one of its uh, counterinsurgency forces uh, from the Jammu region, from the Udampur region. Uh, into into Ladakh to onto the China border, so it has really stretched the Indian Army, put them under pressure, and they are actually dealing with both the fronts, the Pakistan front and the China front, uh, simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on, on one hand, if you're China, uh, you know, India's India's role in the broader Indo Indo Pacific region has been transforming, as you as you indicated in your uh, remarks earlier. India is becoming a more active maritime power in the region. And, you know, it occurs to me that when we think about the, the undercapitalization of the Indian armed forces, uh, looking at the sort of relative budget breakdown between the army, the air force and the navy, uh, I think the events of the last year, I mean, if you're China and you're less interested in having India become a more forward leaning member of the quad, so to speak, carrying out more maritime activities in the Western Pacific uh, or the South China Sea, I mean, pretty much anywhere east of the Strait of Malacca. 
Uh, I mean, there's a very good argument right now for the Indian Army to uh, maintain its sort of primary position insofar as procurement and budgets are concerned for the future. How do you see that playing out? I mean, uh, you know, the events of the last year, when we sort of think about the broader sort of strategic planning dynamics in India, uh, especially when it comes to budgets, which are perennially a major sort of uh, bottleneck for India in many ways. Uh, um, what's your sense of the way the winds are blowing today? Uh, see, Ankit, very clearly, the, the, the biggest political imperative in India, and not under the not only under the current government, but historically, has been the territorial integrity of the country. Right. Now, when you are dealing with territorial integrity of the country, the land forces or the army would always get a priority, and I think that's what we are seeing again. The fact that you have to deploy fifty to sixty thousand troops in Ladakh, the fact that you have to deploy troops uh, in in the middle sector and in the eastern sector to prevent any further ingress or any further loss of territory, because politically that is unacceptable. Uh, that clearly puts army at the front of it. Uh, and as we can see, the resources are likely to be dedicated, devoted, directed towards the uh, directed towards the army, so that the political imperative is met. Uh, the navy, uh, the maritime issue, is a larger strategic uh, issue, which does not pay immediate political dividends. You know, so so uh, as has been reported in uh, in in some of the foreign media, uh, the Pentagon asked India to twice within the last few months to undertake joint patrols in the South China Sea, but India flatly refused. They refused to undertake those joint patrols. So while maritime may be important from the from a strategic point of view, from a political point of view, it is the land forces, the army, which get the higher prior which get the higher priority because any loss of territory can be very embarrassing for the for the government of the for the government of the day. And in that sense, the priority of the funds, the priority of spending of funds, the limited funds that are available would go towards uh, would go to was the army uh, as you know ankit the navy the indian navy had a plan for 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 being a vision for being a 200 ship navy which has already been brought down to a 175 ship navy 175 vessel navy so that's essentially where we are and the priority has in some in some sense uh, shifted uh, towards the uh, towards the army for what can be funded what can be budgeted uh, than the navy although you will see a lot of lip service being paid to the fact that we will build up the navy and we will uh, we will have a a lot of maritime cooperation with the with the court and with all the other other partners but that's going to be a challenge considering the state of india's economy absolutely no i think the logic of that makes perfect sense you know i mean my only point was that if you're china i mean uh, making those incentives and making those choices much sharper for india's political leadership i think uh, you know leads to an outcome that's not necessarily all negative even if it does lead to this permanent peacetime forward-leaning presence uh, in ladakh i want to go back to something uh, you know you said earlier that i found very interesting sushant i mean uh, you talked about how traditionally i mean really going back to the late 80s and Rajiv Gandhi's trip to China, that India had really put its diplomats and the Ministry of External Affairs at the forefront of managing its relationship with China. Uh, you know, the, uh, of course, the relationship waxed and waned between cooperation and competition. That's sort of the traditional understanding of those 30 years. But now you've said, you know, the situation has changed. Diplomacy alone uh, is not yielding the kinds of results that India wants. And of course, there are a set of political and diplomatic changes in China that, of course, uh, weigh on this as well. But, you know, let's keep the focus a little bit on the Indian side for today's discussion just to scope things a little better. Um, I wanted to ask you about the sort of parallel military dialogue process that's been going on. Uh, so June 6th, I believe, uh, 2020 was the first date of the core commander level 
talks between uh, the Indian Army uh, and the Chinese People's Liberation Army, and, and there's been multiple rounds of talks since then. Um, what exactly happens in these talks uh, is a little mysterious for those of us on the outside, of course. Uh, we do get some reporting uh, citing uh, various sources, uh, primarily on the Indian side, very little from the Chinese side, apart from PLA Western Theater Command statements occasionally. What's your sense of the value uh, of the core commander level process? I mean, of course, it, it did yield a disengagement, uh, which was, uh, of course, an important outcome. Um, but in your sense of how this is affecting how the two militaries actually sort of deal with each other day to day in this in this very tense area. Um, what's your sense of the value? Uh, so, Ankit, uh, the fundamental reason why the co-commanders meeting took place and why China agreed for it, and if you see the Chinese language, it is the senior military commanders meeting. So, when you have a divisional commander or a brigade commander or a battalion commander level meeting, and I'm going uh, hierarchically uh, downwards, these are seen as local commanders, people who, a, who have an understanding of a, of, of a particular local area of a spot, you know, maybe a kilometer by kilometer or a couple of, or a few kilometers by a few kilometers, where you say, you know, 20 of your guys came and, you know, crossed this pit, crossed this boundary line and you know got, got here and we have thrown them out but when you are having core commander level meetings or as china calls senior military com commander level meeting you are clearly indicating that is a larger issue which spans many such sites it's not a single point issue so that's the fundamental difference and india and china have never had core commander level talks earlier and as you are aware, Ankit, after a couple of rounds, uh, both these sides included formal diplomats in these core commander talks. So fundamentally, while these talks may have been fronted or led by the military, there were diplomats as part of it. And, India's, and in India's case, there was also uh, the paramilitary force, which is mandated with uh, guarding the borders in Ladakh, the ITPP, the Indo-Tibetan Border Police, which comes under the Home Ministry. They were also part of it. So it was essentially a whole of government delegation that was meeting the, uh, the, the PLA senior military commander. And as you are aware, PLA, of course, had its political commissars uh, as part of it. So fundamentally, it was at a much higher level uh, of engagement that it was taking place. And secondly, it indicated that both the sides accepted that these were not localized issues. And these, these issues spanned a much larger area and were almost uh, uh, strategic in nature, if one may say so, uh, stretching the definition a bit, uh, were strategic in nature and therefore needed to be dealt at a much higher, much, much higher level. So do you think then fundamentally that the mode in which the thinking in New Delhi, at least on the mode in which India should be approaching China or dealing with China has somewhat changed away from, you know, putting diplomats at the forefront or has that lesson not yet really been learned? Uh, I think uh, uh, there is a more and more there's a, there's a recognition that what worked for last 30 years and China has more agreements with India than with any other country on the on the border, which they've signed since uh, 1993, uh, that those agreements are no longer no longer deliver, delivering. I think I think that's fundamentally that's something which uh, which is more and more clear to Indian diplomats. And I think it's also clear to the Indian military. And I think it has been said in. Uh, in, you know, in, in, in more or less couched in different language, but clearly conveyed that the military has to now be prepared to deal with uh, deal with the situation uh, on, 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 on its own. It cannot be handled by, uh, by, 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 by diplomats, by diplomats alone. And Ankit, just to get back to your last question, sure. uh, that uh, there were a couple of reports in India yesterday, uh, or rather on, the, on June 15th itself, uh, that there might be uh, major general level talks which have been proposed by, by China or divisional commander level talks which have been proposed by China. And that if India were to accept it, that would be a big letdown or a big come down from the uh, uh, from its earlier stance, because that would mean that you are looking at these problems as very localized problems and not a problem over a larger over a larger 
span. Uh, so we would have to really uh, watch out that after 11 rounds of core commander-led talks uh, in Ladakh, the last of the last of which took place on April 9th, uh, what re where really does it uh, does it lead to? Do the two sides agree to? Uh, divisional commander-led talks. Do, do do the two sides believe that these are very localized localized problems which do not need higher leadership, whether higher military leadership or higher political leadership or higher diplomatic leadership's intervention? That's something we will have to watch out for because that would mean a dramatic shift in India's position. Because India's position so far has been that there can be no normalcy between uh, between India and China, between Beijing and New Delhi, unless the border situation is resolved. And the border situation, as per India, has been created by China's ingress into various areas uh, in the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. So... To pivot a little bit, I want to ask you about the politics of the Sino-Indian border situation. Um, it's been an interesting, um, it's been an interesting time, sort of as an external observer, sort of following these things in India. The Indian government, of course, has tried to manage the narrative. I think rather unsuccessfully. Uh, of course, there was a lot of uh, ambiguity and sort of unclear statements being made initially about whether even incursions had happened, whether PLA troops were even on territory that India claimed. Uh, you know, uh, for listeners, if, if you're interested in this, uh, there is a podcast from last year where um, we talked a little bit about the indeterminacy and the history of the line of actual control itself. But when it comes to where we are today, um, how, how have sort of opposition parties, the Indian public, um, how have they sort of reacted to the way in which the Indian government uh, and, and Prime Minister Modi primarily have sort of managed this issue? I mean, obviously, the outcomes have not been all too favorable for India, um, you know, not not just referring to, of course, the tragic deaths of uh, of 20 Indian Army soldiers last year, but but more generally, the fact that this situation has persisted and hasn't been resolved in a decisive manner uh, or any, you know, we're, we're nowhere close to a return to the status quo ante in uh, April 2020. So how has that sort of reverberated in national politics? Uh, two things, uh, Ankit, very quickly. Number one, uh, there's been only one uh, poll pub uh, of the mood of the public, which was conducted by Sea Voter for ABP News last month, and that very clearly blamed the Modi government for whatever has gone on on the borders. I think some 48 or 44% people blamed, uh, I, I forget the exact numbers, but more but more people blamed the Modi government than, than who did not. And, and it, I think the difference was more than 10 to 15%, which clearly indicates that the public believes uh, that the central government led by Prime Minister Modi has not handled the situation and is responsible for the, for the, for the Chinese, for the Chinese incursions in, in, in Ladakh. Uh, as far as the opposition has concerned, the fact that this uh, thing has remained in public debate has largely due to uh, has largely been due to certain opposition leaders like Mr. Rahul Gandhi, uh, who has consistently uh, put out statements in public, tweeted about it, spoken about it, and said things which many political leaders would have found uh, uh, found very tough to found very tough to say, considering the nationalist narrative in India. Uh, in fact, the president of the Indian National Congress, the biggest opposition party in India, Mrs. Sonia Gandhi, issued a statement uh, today uh, saying that, that the government has not brought any clarity into what the situation in Ladakh has been. There has been no briefing about it. There has been nothing has been told about it. And without clarity, nothing can be done. India seems to be uh, have been caught in a fix. And I think on China, on China border particularly, because Mr. Modi sold a very muscular policy, sold a very nationalist foreign policy, uh, the whole Ladakh crisis uh, 
also because some of the military veterans have come out in the open and stated things very clearly and very starkly uh, has put a lot of pressure uh, on 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 the on the on the prime on the on the prime minister uh, that neither his very belligerent very nationalist mode nor the fact that he hosted uh, uh, President Xi Jinping for an informal summit in Chennai, and before that attended another informal summit with him in Wuhan, have not yielded yielded results. And the fact that it has come in in a climate of economic downturn, in a climate where pandemic has really hit India very hard, uh, has compounded matters for Mr. Modi and his government. Mm-hmm. So, Sushant, kind of zooming out a little bit now to the bigger picture, uh, when we sort of think about the root causes of, uh, I mean, first of all, you know, the root causes behind the situation at the border and the broader decline in, in Sino-Indian relations. Uh, you know, I think there are many places to look for answers. I don't think there's a single answer. There are changes in India, changes in how India thinks about China, how India, I mean, for instance, going all the way back to the uh, 2017 standoff uh, at Doklam uh, handled things. Uh, of course, major changes in Chinese foreign policy and how Xi Jinping has directed the PLA uh, and even Chinese diplomats to uh, pursue Chinese interests overseas. Um, when it comes to sort of reflecting on, you know, where things, you know, how, how things got to where they are now and, and how they might improve, uh, what's your what's your diagnosis of, of really the uh, the root causes of the current unease in, in Sino-Indian relations? Uh, Ankit, very hard to say. The Indian foreign minister is in rock record is on record saying that he doesn't know why the why this happened, what happened in Ladakh, and why the relations nosedived uh, so quickly. Uh, but uh, more astute observers, like former former National Security Advisor Siv Shankar Menon, etc., say that the trends were visible from 2012, 2013, uh, when the Chinese uh, behavior and stance had completely uh, had completely had completely changed. Uh, I think there were a couple of other proximate triggers. Uh, the construction of Indian infrastructure in the border, and I'm not, I'm not talking about major infrastructure projects uh, like you know big major tunnels or major highways. I'm talking about small infrastructure construction on the borders in some of the disputed areas, which triggered some of the local insecurities of the PLA in Ladakh. That's very clearly a factor. Uh, politically, what India did uh, in Jammu and Kashmir uh, with the removal of Article 370 and bifurcation of the erstwhile state into two union territories, uh, considering that India, that China claims parts of Ladakh to be their own, uh, and the fact that the Indian foreign minister had to fly down at very short notice uh, to 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 placate the Chinese in some sense. Uh, the, uh, the the these facts. Besides that, uh, the as you rightly pointed out, Doklam and India's dealing of Doklam was a mi- was a big factor which led to a change in thinking within Beijing within China that India was really now getting very aggressive. Uh, and I think another factor was the fact that local Indian actions on the border by local Indian commanders, ambitious Indian commanders, uh, were being seen from the prism of a larger political direction emanating from Delhi or out of the partnership with the with the US. I think all those factors put together uh, and the fuse was lit by some of the local factors uh, really led led to this crisis where a complete lack of trust and the fact that the power gap between India and China has increased o- over the years now and the gap is really wide where China is pitching in a different league unlike 30 years ago uh, brought us to this pass where the where the two countries seem to be talking past each other even in all these conversations in all these engagement in all these talks we really do not see two countries two governments to uh, the diplomatic 
parts of two countries talking at each other, uh, talking to each other. They are talking past each other. They are talking about almost different issues, different worldviews, different things. And uh, I think that's a huge challenge. How do you reconcile uh, those situations, especially when you when you have strong nationalist uh, governments in both countries? People, um, President Xi, Prime Minister Modi, who both believe that nationalism and and whether it's Chinese nationalism or Indian nationalism is the is the uh, is their is their calling card in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, thank you so much for that incredible tour de force uh, reflecting on the last year in Sino-Indian relations. Uh, I really want to thank you for coming on today and sharing your insights. Thank you so much, Ankit. I enjoyed myself. Thanks a lot. For listeners, if you like what you heard on the show and you want to keep up with future episodes, make sure you subscribe. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll be back soon with more.